Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hello listeners, I'm Ben Baldanza, ready for our weekly trip around the airline business. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm joined as always by my co-host Chris Chimes, who spent the last 10 days sailing the Caribbean on a yacht cruise. I can't think of a better place to get away from all of this right now. Hey Ben, uh, yeah, it was a great vacation. Uh, the first one in a couple of years now, but um, I've got to say that Planning the vacation is a breeze compared to planning for the actual travel to get to the vacation. This involved travel to Puerto Rico, plus embarking a ship, plus meeting requirements of other destinations, so testing for Puerto Rico, registering with Verify, securing QR codes and other health authority approvals, more testing before boarding, and then mid-cruise and health visas. Um, it was... Um, such a pleasure when we got back to the U.S. to do something familiar like TSA PreCheck and Global Entry um, that uh, people really must want to go on vacation to go through all this. So I admire them for that. And while I did my best to stay on top of the airline business, it seemed like things were moving very fast the last 10 days. Well, Chris, you're one of the few people I know who would think that staying on top of the airline business is part of a vacation, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, what might be normally a post-holiday lull was anything but. Let's talk about a few news items, then get to our interview with Tony Lefebvre, the CEO of Signature Flight Support. Okay, well, Ben, I've lost track of flight cancellations, both in the U.S. and internationally. At one point uh, early in the week, I saw a number of 27,000 flight cancellations in the U.S., but I know that number is higher as we record this and go to market with the program. But the key metric was that the this was the biggest period of flight disruption since the pandemic first hit airline operations in 2020. That's right, Chris. And most news agencies have been sort of reporting the growing number of cancellations since Christmas Eve. That seems to be the start date that most are building from. And that number, I think, now is north of 30,000 from that date, obviously bigger on bigger days. Things are starting to get a little bit better now that we're into the second week of January, though. We've had this Omicron-driven spike of a lot of call-outs and people getting sick and not being able to come to work in combination with some weather. So that created a lot of those cancellations. But most of the holiday travelers are home by now, even if it took them longer than they expected. And then now we're in this period of slower post-holiday travel demand that seems to have allowed airlines to thin out their schedules a little more. Most airlines have announced pulling down flights while they're getting hold of who really is able to come to work or not. So I think we're in a 30 or 45 day period where all the activity is just a little lower now, and that's going to give airlines, hopefully, the ability to get back on 
on track again with having what should be a fairly busy spring leisure travel season. Well, no airline executive wakes up every morning trying to think about how many flights are going to cancel. Um, but I, I think this was one of my frustrations watching this story, even from afar, was the tote board kind of mentality of the media in the context of, yes, there were lots of flight cancellations, but how many of them were strategic? How many of them were preemptive? Uh, what was the actual completion rate every day? I mean, 27,000 flight cancellations without any context to me doesn't mean anything, but it's an easy way for the media to report on this. And I'm not dismissing the fact that lots of people were impacted, but no one's really done the story about how did the industry do through, through the holidays, notwithstanding the, the cancellations, but how quickly did they recover? How many people got to where they needed to be on time? even with the cancellations. So um, I think it's a product of, you know, fewer and fewer people covering the industry that really know it. And so they just kind of run the headline numbers and not look more closely at what's happening behind the scenes. That makes a lot of sense, Chris. And we had this summer of 2021 where there were lots of cancellations and that cloud seemed to move around you know, airlines one at a time in a way. And then we had a really good Thanksgiving, much shorter period of time. But I think the media and maybe even you and I were surprised that there weren't a lot of disruptions over what was a fairly busy Thanksgiving period. But then Omicron sort of hit. And when the staff shortages really were combined with more difficult weather as you got late into December, it's caused those problems. Now that we're in this um, lull period, I think it's really good for the airlines to be able to, you know, get everything back together, figure out who's sick, who isn't, who maybe got COVID through with Omicron, but will be ready to come back to work again before mid-February and things like that. Yeah, certainly every airline employee needs a break to catch their breath. And so um, this kind of January lull is coming at the right time uh, as traffic drops off. And while we got to manage through the weather and other kinds of issues that are typical in January, I think everybody needs a break. Um, and, and then, Ben, this item really caught my eye, and it caught the eye of a few of our listeners who wrote in right away, including uh, Joe from Tampa. But it, even while I was enjoying my pina coladas uh on the deck, the news about Allegiance order for 10737 Maxes seems to be a rather significant move away from Airbus only four years after achieving an all Airbus fleet. What's your reaction to that news? You know, I was surprised, but when I thought about it, I wasn't completely surprised. Let me tell you why. I mean, when Allegiant started, it was started by some of the people who had started Value Jet Airlines, and that airline was started based on sort of a low price available airplane. And that's how Allegiant started. There were lots of MD-80s being shed by bigger airlines, and they said, we can get this airplane, you know, at low capital costs spend a little money making the interior nicer and we'll have a much lower cost of capital than our competitors. And, and they started their business that way with a low utilization model. They then moved to bring in used Airbus airplanes, 
but they brought in the planes that were being let go by EasyJet, which some of our listeners know were a fairly unique model of the A319, that EasyJet put the A320 center section, which has two doors on each side on those 319s. That allowed EasyJet to put 156 seats on that plane, which is more than the single door on each side A319 sold everywhere else in the world. So again, they took advantage of an available airplane at a low capital cost. Then they started buying new airplanes and going into some new Airbuses and going into some more middle-sized cities like Cincinnati and even Newark. That's not a middle-sized city, obviously. It's a huge city. And so when I saw the Max order, I thought, like, where did those planes come from? And when I looked at it, it said that most, if not all of these planes, were originally going to be delivered to Ryanair. So my guess is that Maury Gallagher and the team at Allegiant got probably a screaming deal from Boeing to bring that plane in if they were already in the production line and were going to be delivered someplace, but maybe we're getting delays or resistance in delivering there. And they came in kind of as the white knight to say, I'll take those airplanes. So my guess is they didn't say we want a hundred of the most expensive new planes we can get. They said, here's an opportunity to bring in a plane that is a terrific operating plane that has really low unit costs of operation. And we can get it at a particularly good deal because Boeing is eager to try to find a buyer for them. So that's what I that's how I interpreted this deal. I think just like Allegiant has done since they started their business and like ValueJet which became AirTran before them did, I think they're taking advantage of a particularly beneficial aircraft deal to find a way to use that benefit in a business model. Yeah, I think that's fair um as you were talking it's you know, it's a smart move. Um, they clearly have some big growth plans. And as they get bigger, they don't want the manufacturers to take them for granted. So they're going to be a significant operator of the two major aircraft that are out there. And they can get better prices that way and and continue to grow knowing that they have a little bit of leverage in the marketplace. Well, more Airlines Confidential in a moment, but we want to thank Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at Seabury Capital. Ben, moving overseas to Asia for a second, um, I saw some reports out of China that aviation authorities there are targeting 2023 to 25 to restore international air travel in and out of China. That seems to be a pretty big window. Now, obviously, the domestic market is huge, uh, but can all those carriers withstand that long of a void in their profitable long-haul flying? That's a great question, Chris. And I actually think that window, as wide as it is, is actually pretty fair. I mean, it's just hard to see. You talked earlier about 
all the hoops you had to jump through to take the cruise you took and how normal TSA pre-check and global entry seemed at the end of that. You know, as long as we're in a world where there are testing protocols for long haul that put a lot of pressure on flyers, and importantly, those protocols can be different by country. And so you've got to do a lot of research, and it adds risks to the flying in terms of what if I get stuck? Our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, um, got stuck in St. Lucia because he tested positive while on vacation in St. Lucia. And I'm sure at some point, maybe he'll come on the show and tell us all about that. But it's one thing getting stuck in St. Lucia when you can do your business from there. It's another thing if you got to get back to an office or back to family or something and get stuck. So with all that uncertainty, I think 2023 to 2025 makes sense. But your question is, can these carriers withstand that long of a void? It really comes down to how big their domestic markets are, like you see in the U.S. Are the Chinese carriers able to deploy their normally longer haul wide body airplanes on domestic routes to at least get some utilization out of those if the domestic market is building back? But across the world, the number of wide body airplanes flying long haul is just a lot smaller than it has been and then was in 2019. And it's really sluggish coming back. So airlines are going to be dependent on their domestic markets in the meantime, being able to deploy some of those bigger airplanes in their domestic markets or figuring out how slowly they can bring that back. The biggest challenge Chris, is going to be for the airlines in the world that only do that kind of flying, like an Emirates, for example. Their smallest plane is the 777, right? My son jokingly calls that their regional jet, right? (laughs) And and so all of their flights are long haul. I guess Dubai to India is only, you know, under three hours or two to three hours, depending on where you're going. But even Dubai to India depends on connections from Europe and the U.S. and other things to fill those planes. So I think those are the airlines that are in the most trouble because of this time frame. Airlines like American United Delta, the bigger um, Chinese airlines, the bigger European airlines that have some kind of a domestic market in Europe Domestic means the EU, of course. Um, I think they have a chance to sort of muddle through in terms of what they do with these big airplanes in the meantime, but it's going to be tough for sure. We'll be right back with our discussion with Tony LaFave from Signature Flight Support, which is brought to you by TA Connections. TA Connections procures over 30 million room nights annually for their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. It's my pleasure to welcome Tony Lefebvre to the show to talk about another aspect of the airline business, executive and corporate aircraft service. Tony and I were colleagues at U.S. Airways, along with Chris, And I thought so highly of him, and I was so glad that I brought him to spirit when I joined that airline. Tony, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thank you, uh, Ben and Chris, for having me, and uh, great to get back with you guys. 
Great. Well, why don't you start by telling us about your extensive background in aviation and define sort of your current role at Signature? Yeah, sure. So uh, as Ben described, uh, 30 years in the commercial airline uh, business, a uh, combination of uh, working at U.S. Airways for 17 years and then Spirit for the remainder of the time. And then most recently, I've just moved over to private aviation and uh, became the CEO at Signature Aviation, which is the largest FBO operator in the world. So, Tony, you've you've run the gamut really in in the business. You started working at airports and then later moved to cargo. There must have been some formative moments in your career. Uh, What do you uh, mark as kind of key learning points? Yeah, I I mean, certainly there was some things that happened at my career at U.S. Airways, and I call them formative just because they were uh, certainly big, big events. 9-11, of course, is one of the most well-known ones, but also uh, U.S. Airways went through bankruptcy a couple of times, and so you, you learn a lot of things going through the bankruptcy process. Uh, but also just, you know, I had opportunities to do a bunch of different things. And one of those was uh, uh, working in our cargo business, which uh, is a little bit different than the passenger business. It's uh, primarily a B2B business compared to uh, the passenger side. And, uh, you know, it allowed me to get a P&L in, uh, uh, at a, a very large organization uh, with a lot of autonomy to, to run the business. So it allowed me to be fairly entrepreneurial and uh, more nimble in decision making, uh, unlike sort of the, you know, the big behemoth of the passenger carrier. So, so there's been a lot of different events that has allowed me to really learn from various experiences that uh, had happened uh, throughout my career in commercial aviation. Tony, when you were running cargo for U.S. Airways, that's when you and I first met. Did that ever make you consider that as a longer-term career, or was that enough in the cargo space? Yeah, you know, but not really. I, I mean, I liked the people side of the business. It was a great learning experience for me, uh, but my heart was was in the passenger uh, airline side. I loved the whole experience uh, working in, in cargo. But, you know, I yearn for those days, as you know, uh, oftentimes talking to you about, you know, reintroducing back into the passenger side of the business. And so that's where I really enjoyed and and certainly uh, appreciated most of my time in commercial airlines. Well, you got your uh, fill of that at Spirit when you were running the the airport operation side. Um, I'm sure you saw plenty of irregular ops uh, like so many others in the industry. as you kind of watch what's going on in the commercial part of the business right now, and I'd be interested too whether, you know, what irregular ops look like at Signature, but what do you think are the causes of, of today's disruptions? Yeah, you know, it's it's one that certainly got a lot of oppressed attention, and I always try and dissect, you know, how would I have viewed this differently or did things differently? And, and, and one of the things you can sort of summarize and there's some tells specifically around what they're doing to incentivize people to come to work, whether it's paying them three times to pick up a trip. It's really, it seems like it boils down to a crew availability problem and probably some incorrect modeling into sick calls. And not only that, then uh, crew willingness to take overtime, because if there was no availability for overtime, most of them wouldn't be offering two times, three times to pick up trips. And so 
I, I suspect they got that. Plus, they probably are getting sick calls mid-trip, so mid-pairings, uh, which is probably also a lot more frequent than it typically is. Most uh, crew members call in sick before the start of their trip. But I imagine as COVID is fairly prevalent, they're getting crew members mid-trip calling in sick or get exposed to somebody. And so uh, that is you know, stranding an airplane in a market that is probably not a hub and is making it even more challenging to recover because they've got to send a crew member to go pick up the trip or ferry the aircraft out. That's a really good point, Tony. I hadn't thought of the mid-trip problem. So a lot of this, I'm sure, is because Omicron is so contagious and seems to bust through even vaccines. What is this doing to you in the private jet sector? And so overall for business, it's been very positive. We have seen our business grow quite significantly. Uh, when COVID started, we had just like you know, a lot of industries, we, we slowed down. And, uh, but what we started seeing around June, July of 2020 is people migrating to private aviation and uh, started a significant amount of growth in private aviation where people that typically wouldn't have gone and flown on a private aircraft were deciding to, for safety reasons or, you know, to have a little bit more peace of mind, also, because airlines had pulled back their schedules, too, it was a little bit more challenging getting to some of the more obscure markets. And so people, for a combination of reasons, started to experience or experiment with private flying. And it's, quite frankly, been quite sticky. And so many people have taken uh, what they were doing on a hours card, which is usually kind of the first entry into flying private, and then are now converting it into uh, an actual physical share of an aircraft. So I'm going to take you back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, Tony. Um, And irregular ops and disruptions. I know when you were at Spirit, you managed through a pilot strike. Mm -hmm. Talk to our listeners a little bit more about how to get back to equilibrium right now in this current situation. How do you recover from a disruption like we saw over the holidays? Yeah, Chris, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think, you know, one of the things I see is coming back is, you know, operators are very mission oriented. They always want to complete a mission. Um, but there is a point in time when it doesn't make sense to hold on. And, and you've all, I mean, probably all of your listeners have experienced a rolling delay. And that's, you know, sort of this changing information, whether it's a mechanical repair or hopeful that a crew member can you know, come out of a hotel and pick up and start flying another person's line. But what that often does is it creates more issues and more problems. And one of the things I learned at Spirit fairly on, because we were running a fairly tight schedule, we had significantly high utilization. But one of the things that we learned early on is that you can't hold out and try and run every flight once you start getting behind. And typically, once you're three hours late, you should probably, and this is going to be painful for people to hear, is you should probably cancel the flight. And then you should go into recovery mode and start figuring out how you save the rest of the schedule, which will actually do less damage uh, to the overall schedule and, and bring the schedule integrity up. But it's a hard thing to do because, you know, you want to fly and you want to uh, execute on the mission. But in reality, if you're looking at it on a fairly macro basis, 
the best thing to do is oftentimes is cut your loss, cancel, and then move on and recover the pairing uh, some other way. And I don't see that happening. I see, you know, when there's customers that are in airports for 12 hours, 14 hours, they've held on way too long. And, uh, and that just creates more problems because now you have crews that are out of position, you have airplanes out of position, you have downline delays, and it's just the intent is good, but it, the, the actual outcome is worse. All good points, Tony. Uh, yeah, I think all of us have been through that uh, moment of like, let's stop the insanity and cut our losses and fix it. But that's a hard decision to make because, like you said, ultimately people are driven to complete a mission, to meet the customer's needs. And when you're failing, you don't want to give up. So um, that's that's sometimes when others have to step in and, and make the call. And Chris, you're seeing that now, right? You're seeing the airlines are, are recognizing their ability to perform all the missions is going to be very challenged. And so they're doing proactive cancellations now, which quite frankly is the absolute best scenario because then you can line up airplanes, assets uh, with crews at the projected level where you think sick calls are going to come at. And you'll you'll have enormous improvement in schedule integrity as a result of it. So it's hard to do, but it's the absolute right decision. And I'm glad to see Lots of carriers have taken that tack now and saying, here's what we really believe we can actually um, execute uh, in the future. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Tony, but not before we remind you that Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines are redefining aviation. With up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and with a much lower noise footprint. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We're talking with Tony LeFave from Signature Flight Support. Tony, you moved to running airport operations and fueling services for many airlines at ASIG. What was it like moving to that side of the business after being a customer of companies like that for so long? You know, Ben, it was it was really challenging because, you know, instead of dealing with one airline's priorities, I was dealing with every airline's priorities. Uh, for example, we were the fueler for the entire airport at uh, Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. And as you know, not all airports operate the same and different expectations and different demands. And so that was probably the biggest challenge was, you know, the expansive operating parameters and expectations with multiple different operators uh, made it a lot more challenging than just dealing with one in, in, in one individual airline. So as you look at that part of the business that many really don't even appreciate, except for your customers, um, how do you balance that versus corporate jet demand and other parts of the signature portfolio? Yeah, you know, at Signature, we're really focused business really purely on FBOs. We do commercial airline fueling uh, where it is typically small to medium-sized airports. We don't do large-scale operations, and they fit nicely within our existing operational footprint. And so we're very careful not to do commercial fueling in places where, quite frankly, it distracts from our core business, which is running FBOs. Uh, We do it more as a complementary service, and we do it quite well because we do it typically at small scale 
uh, medium-sized airports, that actually is very beneficial to commercial airlines and airports because you really couldn't do the capital investment to put that large scale of a fuel infrastructure. So it works quite well. And that's where we have focused and uh, we keep them very separate within our operational footprint. How has the labor shortage impacted your business over the past year and a half? You know, we've we've felt the same pressure that others have felt in the marketplace. There has certainly been an arms race in wages. Um, if you look at, you know, if it's Amazon, who's always seems to be called out that, you know, locates a you know warehouse uh, very close to airports because of logistics and transportation. Amazon's business is very large. And so they draw a uh, significant amount of the employee population that we typically draw from uh, that goes to work uh, at Amazon. But there's others that then participate. And so what happens is the local market uh, is is under pressure and there's just not enough despite even raising wages or despite uh, doing you know, aggressive uh, recruiting tactics, it's still hard right now to be able to deal with uh, with the market. And quite frankly, there's a lot of markets that are just you know struggling with a, a sufficient labor pool. Tony, you spoke earlier, and you and I have spoken privately too, about the buildup in private aviation since the pandemic with people yeah. trying the product who maybe didn't use it before, even though they had the funds to, but mm-hmm. maybe thought it was too expensive or something. Do you think that the new customers you've gained in this private space are going to stay after all COVID issues are behind us, if that ever happens, of course? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, ben, I, I think... I'll give you a couple of data points that say that's probably going to happen. And one of them I alluded to earlier, which is the way people typically start flying uh, private is they fly charter operations uh, and they go and they'll pick an empty leg flight or do something to introduce them to, to flying. The next step they do, which we see you know, continuing demand increases for is hours cards. Now, an hours card is a commitment because you're putting a set of dollars on. But once that's exhausted, you're done with your commitment and you could say, well, that customer then could go back to commercial. But what we're seeing them now do is actually buy into a share of an airplane or a full aircraft. And that is a much, much longer commitment uh, and typically could be you know, multiple year commitment. And as a result of that, the business is going to have a lot more stickiness. And those customers are converted and we do a lot of surveying. We talk to them and they're into private flying and probably won't go back. Or at least they'll be a hybrid flyer where they will do a little bit of commercial and a little bit of private aviation where it makes sense um, to do. So I think long term, certainly customer trends. And then if you look at aircraft deliveries, they're expected to be close to 1,300 aircraft, uh, private aviation aircraft this year which they typically were in the 800 range. So you know, those kind of data points give me confidence that it's probably here to stay and will continue to grow. That's really fascinating. I have a follow-up on that one, Tony. For the customers that use their hourly card but then don't buy into fractional ownership, yeah. from some of those, are you also seeing them buying another hourly card? Yes. So the repeat customer, the rates are quite significant. I don't have exact numbers, but it's it's above 70 percent 
if you talk to sort of the major operators in the space. So they're seeing customers exhaust their 25-hour card and they're re-upping either for another 25-hour card or a 50 or a higher card or even better, they're buying a card for a bigger aircraft type. So they're upscaling the aircraft, which means they're needing it either to go on a longer mission, so fly further, uh, or bring pe- more people with them. So I'm going to tap into your expertise in your current role from about what you just said, and then also your previous roles helping U.S. Airways and Spirit grow internationally. What do you think the current situation is as you see it from Signature or at Signature with regard to the outlook for business travel coming back to the commercial airlines? And what about international long-haul service? Where do you see that going over the next three or four years? Yeah. So on the first question, I think, you know, business travel will return. Uh, I think we started seeing some signs of that in between Delta and Omicron. There was a return of business travel. There is a need for people to make connections to customers, whether you're selling to a new customer, but also for, you know, we run a multi-site locations. There's requirements for the team and leadership to get out to those sites do business with airports or what have you, that is across all business. And so I think you will see people return back to business flying. I think you'll start seeing folks uh, get back on airplanes to go out and meet customers and do those things that they were starting to do, probably held off a little bit over the last few months, but I see that returning and I think that'll continue a trend. Logically, then you would say that will then continue uh, whether it's transatlantic, transpacific, people will start doing the same thing outside of the United States and will start flying uh, back in long haul. And so I think you'll see both a return of domestic business travel, but then long haul will also start returning. I think there is, though, you know, to sort of the counter to that, there has been a secular shift. There's things that you are not going to jump on an airplane that you may have uh, previously. Uh, you'll do it over a Zoom call, um, and that's permanent. But I also think with the growth and also it seems, you know, with remote workplaces, you're also seeing a growth in an area where traditionally hadn't been uh, a big area where people were living in multiple homes and commuting back and forth uh, uh, while still working from home. So I think maybe you see a little bit of that coming off business, but you'll see some growth in Uh, People that live in multiple places are able to be a little bit more in their flexible work location. Tony, that's a really smart way to think about things, I think. And uh, but I think if Robert Isom and Scott Kirby and Ed Bastian are wondering where at least some of their business customers have gone, they should give you a call, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, Ben, we've seen we've seen business customers come back. Now, we've we've always had. Matter of fact, private aviation was mostly business flying. We've actually, since COVID, we've increased leisure flying quite significantly. And so I think we've always been a choice for business travel because we provide executives and folks that are flying, we provide time and we're efficient. And so you you could fly from New York to Chicago, do a day trip, and a meeting and then get back to to New York. And that in itself, I think will continue. 
And, and I, I don't think those customers are going to go to commercial. They've always been with us. But I think there's some growth areas where people are going to use private aviation as more of a utility uh, than they have in the past. Well, thanks so much, Tony. As we wrap up, whether it was running an airport or a cargo operation or all the airports at Spirit or uh, ground handling services and now running Signature Flight, you've run a lot of really big operations. What are the one or two biggest things you think all of our listeners should know about running a big operation? I I think you need to step out of sort of the micro situation that you're dealing with and pull back to the macro and go, you know, what is it we're trying to accomplish? When we're just talking about, you know, cut your losses, running a eight hour, nine hour delay is not the right thing to do. You need to reset. Think about what you want to ultimately uh, achieve with the operation and make decisions that are very difficult and challenging to do. I, I don't I mean, I've been in that position multiple times but you'll actually improve the overall operational integrity. You'll make more customers happy and you'll get back to and recover sooner. So it's make the hard decision a little bit earlier than, than you necessarily in your gut would like to do, but you know is the right decision. Well, Tony, you've always been very in tune with this business and we appreciate you so much coming on Airlines Confidential, sharing your experience with our listeners. And I hope for a very great year for you and Signature Flight Support. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Great to uh, get back together with you guys and uh, look forward to your, your podcast having a great year as well. Thanks, Tony. Great to talk to you. Have a good year. Thank you. We'll be right back. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Tony LaFay for taking our questions, and now we'll take yours. Remember, you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. So, Ben, our first question, or more like a comment, is from Cameron from Phoenix who didn't like your choice of Gary Kelly as the 2021 Airline Person of the Year. Hi, Ben. Interesting show last week. I know that you love Gary Kelly, but choosing him as your Person of the Year is misplaced. He has done nothing but dismantle Herb's airline. He's He's great at numbers, as the stock price shows, but the operation is terrible. He and Mike Vandeden have gutted the operational foundation, and under COVID, it is crumbling. Kelly got lucky with fuel hedges, but has been terrible for customers and employees. Luckily, he is finally leaving. Hopefully, Jordan will be better. Best wishes. So, Ben, I don't think Cameron's going to be invited to uh, Gary Kelly's going away party, but uh, what do you say? Well, Cameron seems like he works at Southwest, maybe, or at least uh, flies the airline a lot. And I never thought about... Gary Kelly sort of dismantling or really wrecking the overall Southwest operation. He ran the company for a while, not just only through COVID. And it's still a company that despite their challenges 
is still really loved by customers, has done, you know, relatively well in the COVID world. All airlines have done poorly, of course, but on a relative basis, they've held their own quite well. And it's just hard to manage in the situation that we've had. You've seen what's happened at every other airline. And when you see what happened with Southwest, there were such enormous shoes to fill with Herb Kelleher, who is such a giant or was such a giant in this field that I thought the fact that Gary Kelly kept the company going, kept it headed on a good track, kept it growing and managed it well enough through COVID warranted that sort of person of the year. But I understand what Cameron's saying. And certainly from an insider's view or from some customers who really disrupted view, I'm sure it probably didn't ring as true as it might have seemed to me. So points well taken, Cameron, and thanks for your view on that. Chris, we also got a question from Peter in Atlanta. Sounds like a loyal listener who is looking to get into the industry. I've been trying to get a job with an airline for more than 10 years. I've applied for more than 500 jobs. I talked to a recruiter once and she said there are a lot of millennials discrimination in this industry. Millennials don't hire people with more education and experience than they have. I have a master's degree in airline management. I actually teach courses for IATA in airline management, but in my own city, I can't get an airline job. I really wanted some advice in what to do. Airlines say they need people, but when you apply, they don't call you back. Chris, why do you think the industry isn't hiring Peter? Peter, I don't know your background beyond what you wrote in, and I don't know what you want to do for an airline. Um, clearly, the last couple of years have been disruptive, but as you've said, you've been trying to get a job for 10 years. Um, I don't know very many people who get jobs by just blindly applying. So um, it sounds like you've got some connections in the business. I would certainly elevate and escalate your efforts to network in and maybe put that question to some specific people in the, in the business. Why do you think I'm not getting hired? But there are certainly other jobs than working for an airline that are aviation related. So um, I would encourage you to expand that search, redefine, and also kind of get some very constructive feedback, whether it be investing in an executive coach or some other resource to really kind of put a mirror up to the situation and figure out why you're not getting traction with your job search. There's a lot going on. There's, as we keep talking about every week, you know, you're pointing out there's a job shortage. I don't think you want to be a baggage handler. So, um, you know, I'm not suggesting uh, go, go take any job in the business, but I, I think you, you need to have some conversations with people in the know who can give you some constructive feedback about what airlines want and why your background either does or doesn't align. But I'm not sure it's a, a discrimination thing based on what I'm, what I'm reading from your question. You know, Chris, that's really good advice. My sense in reading Peter's note is that he does have good experience, right? He's got a master's degree. He's worked at IOT and things. But there may be a an expectation mismatch here. 
in terms of the roles he thinks he's qualified for versus the roles that an airline really needs the help in. So I think your advice of talking to some people about why he might not be hiring. I mean, look, I've been the CEO of an airline at Spirit, but if I went to work in a business that was related to something I've done, but not what I've actually done, I don't think anybody would talk to me about being their CEO, right? right. <laughs> and right. so I think uh, some of this is going to be expectations management. So that was great advice, Chris. Chris, our finer wine is from Elliot in Bradenton, Florida. Last July, I spent 16 days in the hospital with a lung disorder. I could not fly on my appointed date and attempted to reach out to Delta to request a credit so I could fly when healthy again. The telephone waits were up to seven hours. I wrote to Delta customer care four separate times, sent two separate fax communications to customer care and got confirmations they were received and finally wrote a letter to Ed Bastian, Delta CEO. I outlined the situation and informed Delta I am a senior citizen and disabled. I have never once received a response from Delta, not one single response. Delta has demonstrated what may be the most horrible example of customer service in existence, absolutely disgraceful. I will never, I will, I will never travel with this airline again. Chris, finer wine. Oof. Um, I think this is a fine. It's a big fine. Um, and it sounds like Delta needs some customer care employees. I don't think that's what Peter wants to do, though, in Atlanta. But I don't know what kind of fare category it was purchased. So I don't know if, if uh, Elliot was entitled to a refund. But certainly the fact that he didn't get any response back makes him entitled to a refund at this point, I think. And the fact that he found twice a fax machine to send a fax um, uh, to prove he got the confirmation that, that it was received. Uh, I give him credit for that as well. So th this is unlike Delta from everything they talk about with regard to customer service, but these things sometimes happen. And, and we all recall last summer was a pretty tough summer with lots of people on hold and, and lots of airlines struggling to take care of customers. So uh, I think he should try again, and hopefully someone from Delta Customer Service is listening, and we'd be glad to see if we can point them in the right direction. I agree with you, Chris. Airlines, I'm sure, have been inundated with customer requests for lots of things, especially with all the cancellations. But even if you have an answer that the customer doesn't like, not getting back to them is a real challenge. And so I agree with you. A total fine here. Chris, as we wrap up, instead of shout outs this week, how about we each give a New Year's travel resolution? I'll go first. My resolution is to get back to a longer international trip with my family this year. In 2019, my wife and then 12-year-old son went to Vietnam for two weeks and we had an absolutely spectacular time. I think it changed his perspective on the world, taking a trip like that. And travel has a way of doing that. And yet for the last couple of years, obviously, we've not been able to take a trip like that. We've flown a little in the U.S. We've driven some in the U.S. But I'm hoping that in summer 2022, we can go to a real interesting place that's far away from here and get my now 15-year-old son another life-changing experience. 
I like that. Uh, and I'm going to advocate for Marsha and Enzo, uh, Ben, from something you said back at Thanksgiving time. Before you do that, you need to get them global entry and TSA pre-check, okay? So you mentioned that they didn't have it before, so they really need it right now. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to be a little more granular. I've got seven co-branded affinity cards in the airline and hotel space. I was going to get rid of two of them. I tried to get rid of one right before Christmas, and they talked me into taking a version of the card that doesn't carry an annual fee. I should have stuck to my guns, so I'm going to get rid of two of my cards in 2022. I'm not going to say which ones, but at least one airline and one hotel card. Well, I hope you'll let our listeners know which ones decided to get voted off the island, Chris. I think that's great. Well, one more resolution. Let's all resolve to get back together again next week. Until then, thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. Thanks for checking in with us. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.